0: John chapter 1 verses 19 to 34 Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was He did not fail to confess but confessed freely I am not the Christ They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not Are you the prophet? He answered, no Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God.
1: I'm guessing that most people have probably heard of the theory of six degrees of separation. Uh, rough, Rough show of hands. People know what the theory is. Well, the theory is that every person on this planet is separated from every other person on this planet by no more than six degrees of separation, that you have a friend who knows a friend who knows a friend, and and through that line of friends or people that you know that you are connected with, it's only six degrees between you and anyone else on this entire planet. Now, I was talking about this at church one time and I said, it's crazy because there's only six degrees of separation between me and Bill Clinton, who was the President of the United States. And I said, my problem is, I've just got no idea who those six degrees are. And one of the guys from church came up and spoke to me afterwards and said, it's actually four degrees of separation between you and Bill Clinton. I said, four degrees? He he said, I work in investment banking in the city. My boss regularly goes over to the United States and has meetings with Alan Greenspan, who was then the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the United States. He said, I'm pretty sure he knows Bill Clinton. So that's four degrees of separation between me and Bill Clinton. Six degrees of separation between you and some goat-herding Afghanistan man. I mean, it's a crazy idea, isn't it? Mathematicians actually think that it's probably slightly less than six degrees of separation, probably somewhere around about five and a half degrees of separation between you and every single person on the planet. Now, hold on to that thought, because that's going to come up a little later in what we look at here in this passage from John. Last week, we looked at John's gospel, and we opened up with the prologue, those amazing first 18 verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, this morning we're looking at the second half of that chapter, and it's still really kind of preparatory information before Jesus' ministry begins. His ministry is going to start in the next chapter. Now, in the prologue, we were introduced to John the Baptist, Uh, And from what we know in the Gospels, John was quite well known in in and around Jerusalem and in in, in Israel at that particular time. People had a pretty clear idea of who John was. Uh, Matthew tells us this in his Gospel. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Loads of people knew who John the Baptist was. They knew what he was talking about, that he was calling people to repent, telling people that the kingdom is coming and that they need to prepare. But the focus of of, uh, John's ministry in the other Gospels is his baptising work. Uh, Each of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all talk about John and the way that he was baptising people in the Jordan River. But in John's Gospel, not John the Baptist's Gospel, but John's Gospel... John doesn't even mention the fact that he's baptising, really, or doesn't talk about any of the baptisms that he's doing. Uh, go back in the prologue, uh, back chapter 1, verse number 6. Uh, have a look at what it says there. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. That is, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. So what's stressed there is not John's baptising work, it's his testifying work. It's his witnessing work that's the most important thing. John, verse 15, testifies concerning him, that is concerning Jesus. And we're repeatedly told that right through the passage that we've just had read to us this morning. Go down to chapter 1, verse number 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Down to verse 32, John gave this testimony. Verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Witness, testimony, testify, they're the words that keep coming up in relation to John. His baptism work, as far as John's gospel is concerned, seems to be quite secondary. Doesn't even rate a mention. Rather, it's John's witnessing, his testifying that is the important thing. So what's John's witness? What's he saying? What testimony does he have about Jesus? Well, the first part of John the Baptist's testimony involves clarifying who John isn't. John doesn't want there to be any confusion about the role that he plays. Uh, Have a look at verse 19, the beginning of the Bible reading that we had. We're told that the religious leaders have come down from Jerusalem. They've sent a delegation down there to quiz John. They want to know who he is. There seems to have been a heightened expectation in Jerusalem around this time that God was in fact going to act, that God was going to do something at this time, uh, act to save his people. The fact that the religious leaders have sent a delegation out to see John really gives testimony to that, doesn't it? It shows that they are expecting something to happen, so they want to find out who this guy is, if he's the real deal. I mean, if they thought he was just a crackpot or if they didn't have any expectation of God acting at this time, then they wouldn't have sent anyone. But they knew that God had made numerous promises to which they were clinging. Promises that God would establish his kingdom. Promises that a new age would come. Promises that a saviour was going to come into the world to lead God's people. The speculation from the religious leaders was that John might be able to confirm all of this for them. And then look at what we read. Pick it up there in verse number 19. Now, this was John's testimony where the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said. And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet?" He answered, no, it's almost like a game of 20 questions happening here. Were you born in Australia? No. Who are you? They're asking. Now, the mention of Elijah is no coincidence there. If you go to the very closing verses of the Old Testament, God promises that before he acts, before he does anything, Elijah the prophet will come. Now, Elijah died a thousand years before this or hundreds of years before this, but God promises that Elijah will come. And in a sense, John is that Elijah figure. And when he says, are you the prophet? Moses had promised that a prophet greater than him would come to lead God's people. They were waiting for that prophet to come. So John, are you him? And John says, no, I'm not. And instead, he says this in verse 22. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer that we can take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Did you know that in Buckingham Palace, whenever the Queen has a function in Buckingham Palace, uh, whenever there's a a dinner or a grand banquet on, uh, there's someone who comes into the door and introduces the Queen. He'll say something like, ladies and gentlemen, Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth. Do you know who that person is? No, neither does anyone else. I mean, he, he's quite unimportant, really, isn't he? It, it's the person that he's announcing that's important. I mean, I'm sure that guy's mum knows his name and probably has a few close friends who know him and knows that he does that job. But who he is is quite irrelevant. It's the queen that he's introducing. And that's what John's saying here. John's saying that he's a bit player. He's only got a small role in this. Who he is is actually quite unimportant. I'm just a voice in the desert saying, God is coming, so get ready. Prepare the way for the Lord. But it's his witness, what it is that he testifies to, that it's important. The person that he testifies to that is important. John uses four different names, or four different names are given to Jesus in this particular passage. John talks about him being the Messiah, probably the most significant name uh, for the people of Israel at that time. Messiah or Christ means the anointed one, the one that God has chosen, the one that God is going to send to rescue his people. They were longing for the day that God would do that, longing for the day that he would send this anointed one, this Christ, this Messiah, But John also says that this will be the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Again, another very strong Old Testament idea. Look at what he says in verse 33. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is is he who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. One of the defining differences between the Old Covenant, the pages of the Old Testament, and the New Covenant that Jesus comes to bring in is that those who follow Jesus, those who trust in him, will receive God's Holy Spirit. When you read through the pages of the Old Testament, it was really only select people in the pages of the Old Testament who received the Spirit. And normally just people who are in roles of leadership, uh, significant positions. God's spirit would be given to them to enable them to do the tasks that they do. But under the new covenant, God's spirit will be given to all people. And, Jesus, and, and John says, and this is the one who will do it. Jesus is the one who is bringing in that new covenant. Now, those two titles, that Messiah and the one who will baptise with the Spirit, are drenched in Old Testament imagery and, and what the people were longing for. They were longing for that new covenant to come, for the Messiah to come and for God's Spirit to be given to all people. But the next two titles that John uses would have come as a bit of a surprise. Twice, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Verse 29 and verse 36. When God rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt, there was a lamb at the centre of their activity. The Passover lamb. The lamb that was sacrificed. The other time we see that idea of a lamb in the pages of the Old Testament is when we get to these verses in Isaiah, talking about the suffering servant who was to come. He was oppressed. And afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the Lamb of God, who, as John says, has come to take away the sin of the world. And he will do that by sacrifice, by he himself being sacrificed. But then the last title that John uses, it's found in verse 34. And again, this would have been quite a surprise, I'm sure, to his listeners. John says this in verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John is saying that Jesus is God. God. Again, we saw that in the prologue last week. It it must have been a tough thing for people to get their head around. It's still a tough thing for people to get their head around today. But that's John's testimony, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one who's come to baptise people with the Holy Spirit, that he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, that he is the Son of God. But if you had to sum up what this whole passage is about from from verse 19 right through to the end, it's one word. It's witness. It's all about John's witness, but then the impact of John's witness and what that witness does. John is bearing witness to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, telling people who Jesus is. But did you notice what happens? Look at verse 35. The next day... John was there again with two of his disciples. John would have had people who were looked to him as a mentor, as a teacher. They would have spent time listening to John, spent as much of their day as they could with John. And two of John's disciples were there. When he saw Jesus, that is when John saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And we're not talking about them just walking off with Jesus. They've now left John And they're going to follow Jesus from this point. They're going to listen to what Jesus has to say. Two of John's disciples have effectively deserted him. And John couldn't be happier. In fact, that's the result that he was looking for. John is telling people about Jesus so that they will follow Jesus. But I want you to notice what happens next. Go down to verse number 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we've found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And it doesn't end there. Look at the next thing that we read in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip becomes a follower of Jesus, but the first thing that he does is he goes and gets Nathaniel because he wants him to come and follow Jesus as well. It's not just John who's witnessing to Jesus. It's not just John who's telling people about Jesus. It's the natural response that those who come to trust in Jesus will want to see others come to trust in Jesus. Did you see what it said with Andrew, it said the first thing that he did was went and found his brother. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him. There's almost a sense of urgency in this passage, isn't there? That we're gathering more and more people to follow Jesus because this is important. Those who know Jesus want others to know Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, want others to follow Jesus. John spoke to his disciples about Jesus. Andrew, one of John's disciples, spoke to his brother about Jesus. Jesus speaks to Philip. Philip goes and finds Nathanael. only natural that those who trust in Jesus would want others to find out about Jesus. This is where my CSIRO picture comes in. A few years ago, I actually lost a little bit of weight, well, a fairly substantial amount of weight, about 12, 14 kilo, using the uh, CSIRO uh, recipe booklet and the guide that it had to uh, how you should rearrange your diet. Um, People kind of noticed that I'd lost a little bit of weight and were complimenting me on it and I was very happy to tell them all about the CSIRO diet. In fact, my wife tells me that I couldn't shut up about it, that I was talking about it all the time. But it got me thinking, why is it that I'm so keen to talk about the CSIRO diet? Why is it that I'm so enthusiastic but a little less enthusiastic to talk to people about Jesus? I mean, let's face it, one of those things is really important. The other one's just a diet that you can lose a bit of weight with. I think we need to actually see the example that we see in this passage here and actually make sure that that's what our life is a little bit more like. That as people who know Jesus, that we want others to come to know Jesus as well. We have to be gentle in the way that we say things and we have to be polite and respectful and we have to listen to what other people have to say and listen to their views. But if following Jesus is important for us, then surely we would want it to be important for other people as well. And the testimony that we have is important. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the one who can baptise with the Holy Spirit. Above all, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this brings me back to the six degrees of separation. Those six degrees of separation, that's how we ought to be taking the message about Jesus to the entire world, isn't it? There's only six degrees between me and the most remote person living in Siberia somewhere. Six degrees of separation in order to get the gospel to that person. it doesn't sound very hard when you talk about it like that, does it? See, John knows Andrew and Andrew knows Simon. So the gospel goes out that way, doesn't it? Each one of us knows people who need to hear about Jesus. Each one of us knows people who need to come to that point of trusting Jesus and following Jesus. Six degrees of separation between you and every single person on this planet. Six degrees of separation between you and the far flung corners of this world. Makes the world seem like a very small place, doesn't it? Six degrees of separation. And the most effective thing that we can do to see that message about Jesus is not to worry about the sixth person, but to worry about the first, to worry about that person who's closest to us, the people who we regularly have contact with, the people who we know, the person who lives next door or the person who we're involved in the bowling club with or the person that we work with, that we need to make sure that we have that witness to them, that we help them to find out who Jesus is. So we can only worry about one degree at a time. We can't worry about the sixth degree. All I can do is worry about that one degree of separation, that we know Jesus and that we want to introduce others to Jesus as well.